Welcome to the Digital Void Podcast. Joining us today is Sarah Fryer, the author of No Filter, the Inside Story of Instagram. Sarah discusses how the founders of tech startups help to shape our world, from the decisions about where we eat to language itself, and how she came to tell a story not just about the personalities and decisions of a technology company, but one of human and cultural shifts. Joining Sarah in conversation is Dr. Jamie Cohen, digital media culture expert and co-host of The Digital Void. This conversation was recorded live on Digital Void's YouTube channel on Wednesday, June 10th. The full video replay is now streaming. Make sure to head on over to digitalvoid.media for more information about our upcoming virtual salons, workshops, and podcasts. So I really felt like with the Instagram story, it couldn't just be an internal corporate drama. It also had to connect with human life and how much our culture has changed over the last decade to really value um, value visuals, value experiences, um, value the kind of creation that does well on Instagram. Yeah, th- it's a- exactly that. One of the things about a uh, tech book or something in the tech industry is that I think a lot of people come in with this preconceived notion of what tech is. And your book makes mention of it quite often about like what happened post the social network and to Zuckerberg. And then what happened to people who are doing like deep dives in tech culture. And like, it always came down to like, well, the executive did this and then this happened here. And it, and that to me was a, that's a bit cold in the type of writing. And this is how this guy got super rich. Right, right. And, and built like, some A-B-C. great company that will stand the test of time. Yeah, no, that, I mean, it's not a hero story, the the story of Instagram. It, it's a story of complicated interpersonal relationships, clashing egos, competition, like all of these things that go into to this product. And actually the founders who created Instagram, um, they don't write off into the sunset at the end of the book. They, they actually end up leaving Facebook because of clashes with Mark Zuckerberg. And so I I thought that the complication, the fact that it wasn't like the normal tech book story arc that you read was also another thing that fascinated me about it because we don't really know the story of Instagram. We kind of dismissed it uh, as anything that would have its separate story after it got acquired by Facebook in 2012. And so um, to me, that was really fascinating because I've been covering social media since uh, Facebook's IPO basically. And around the time that they acquired Instagram. Right. And I realized that I didn't know the answer to a lot of the questions I had in my mind about how the app had grown, why it was why it was having such a big impact on us and how it worked within Facebook. And so the book was really, I mean, an exploratory process for me. A lot of new things that I learned that I'd never heard before. I'm so glad you said it's not a hero story. I think that to me was when I was reading the book, I was texting Josh and I was just like, you know, this book, it's kind of stressing me out because (laughs) it it read, it reads like a novel. It reads like a story that unfolds, not just from, to me, the, the, the tech stuff was like the background. It was more about these interesting character personalities that were not, they're not good, but they're not bad. They're just, they're people that are doing this business. But what I think was interesting and you brought up just now is that Instagram by its design kind of by its design made sure that we didn't think too much about Instagram. Like, I think that's an important factor in the whole storytelling aspect of it is their control over their narrative and what we understand about the platform. 
it's holistically part of the culture that surrounds Instagram as well as just like its product in itself. So it's harder to cover than your typical front facing company that kind of does everything and tells you where it is with the transparency. It's not that they weren't transparent. It's just that they designed their narrative. Well, let me break that down a little bit. Sure, so when you, when you think about social media products, I, we, I've spent so many times, so many calls that I've had with executives at Facebook, executives at Twitter, they tell you that their products are, are trying, attempting to be a neutral reflection of humanity, um, algorithmically based, if anything, that they're not trying to be the arbiters of what is good or bad on their platform. Mark Zuckerberg said that just last week on Fox <laughs> News when Facebook didn't take down the Trump post. He's like, we don't want to be arbiters of truth. Like, we want to be neutral. We'll get to whether Facebook is neutral in a second, but Instagram is completely opposite of that. These people who worked at Instagram from the very earliest days wanted to set a tone for what was good content on Instagram. They wanted to reward people who did it well and and get rid of people, sort of try to make sure that the people who um, who were making things that they liked got promoted on the at Instagram account, which to this day still has more followers than any Kardashian um, and on their blog and it with behind the scenes help. Uh, they connected a lot of influencers, young entrepreneurs, people around the world who were using Instagram well with opportunities, with, you know, Instagram showcases. They helped help the media decide who ends up on those top 10 Instagram photographers in London or uh, top 10 food accounts you need to follow. A lot of those were sourced from Instagram. And the, the number one rule that they had was that they didn't want to be like Instagram didn't want to be front and center talking about these decisions. They just wanted to be behind the curtain kind of figuring out what got seen by the world because they thought that if people could see this kind of content that they thought was good, they would be inspired by it. They would have interesting things to follow. They would be introduced to maybe trends or interests that they didn't know that they were that they would be interested in. Um, and so as opposed to Facebook, which is trying to to get you to see more of what you've already liked and seen and and um, your behavior shows that you are likely to click on the same kind of thing again. Instagram was trying through the media, through their at Instagram account and through their explore tab to show you things that you may not see yet, which is a really interesting cultural phenomenon. Yeah, I think one of the most fascinating parts of Instagram as a platform is its is its shape and design too. Like it's it's not it doesn't have a share out. It has a very much like it is its own stream. But what you bring up is important because so many people in the 2010s and to this day live their life through that authenticity that is presented in that Instagram aesthetic that that is part of a, a person now. It's not like it's yeah. not separable. And the YouTube, there's a phrase that Nick Cernicek says in a book called Platform Capitalism, where he talks about there is no outside to YouTube. And what he means is like there's when we think just by thinking, we can't think without knowing YouTube exists. But I think the same is said for Instagram. I think when we think about taking photos or I think when we think about just knowing culture exists, I think we don't think outside of Instagram anymore. I think that's like, we know well, it's there. So the thing that I really thought was fascinating about the app is we've had this collective conversation about tech addiction, about the design elements that make you change your behavior a certain way, notifications, things that draw you in. 
what I think is fascinating about Instagram's effect on us is if you go about your life, you will see the impact impact of Instagram in how people design their weddings and how people design their vacations and how they design their homes in what they choose to do, uh, where they go to a restaurant or brunch or what they, what they buy from the grocery store to cook at home. There's so many things that, that are influenced by like, I think this will look good on Instagram, or I think this will present me as a more, uh, interesting person on Instagram, which then gets you some level of, of status and relevance in society. And you, you mentioned the share button. I think that's really important. That's like an inherent design thing uh, about Instagram that is unlike Facebook and Twitter, because everything on your Instagram account is something that you have created. The founders didn't want it to be possible for somebody to just reshare your content because they wanted to attract photographers, creatives, mm. music artists, and those people are very sensitive about their content being shared. But what that mm. what that happened what happened then in our culture is everything on our Instagram was like putting our best foot forward, like showing showing people how we wanted to be seen and evaluated, mm -hmm. and it became aspirational, and and we started to shape our outside behavior to fit the image we wanted to present. And now, now it's important in how, who we choose to date, where we choose, all of the things I mentioned, popularity in high school, um, so much of that is tied to Instagram now. And part of it is because there is no resharing. Right. Uh, you know, the, just, just you saying all this is like still, I read the book, but like you saying it again is like so impactful to me, my understanding of just our general culture. I've been to several Instagram weddings, like at this point, and I don't think people say that out loud. They're not like, this is an Instagram wedding, but it's clear with the Edison bulbs and the, the leaves and the girls like aesthetic from the, like the show is like, it's designed specifically to be Instagram. And that, and to, and to be fair, like Instagram and Pinterest have this symbiotic relationship where you plan out on Pinterest, what is going to be photographed well on Instagram. Wow. Like, so there's like a co-equal growth almost like culturally inside of that. Yeah, that's, yeah. so that to me is like one of those things where when we think about what it means to be shaped by culture, we often think about the things that affect us. And it's so interesting in the 2010s to think about Instagram because when we think about the 90s culture, a lot of that was designed by MTV and, and aesthetics of magazines or zines and skate culture and cyber culture. And then in the, in the Instagram world, it wasn't as organic, but it felt organic. Like it was designed so well that people felt that they came up with the ideas on their own, even though in the background, Instagram was kind of shaping it. It was kind of like designing that overall aesthetic that we gained, like we just became that. And, it's, and that's what I mean by there's no outside. When we think about things at this point, even down to the idea of a plan did, you know, like which I think is a funny term. Whenever I travel, do you know with your angles? Do you know your background? <laughs> you know yeah, angles, lighting, how you make it look like it's exactly right, how you're going to turn your head, and and so on and so forth. It's absolutely amazing when we think about it. I think a lot of people point at that and make fun of it, but they'll do that just the same. Like well, it's already I, in. I think one of the like I didn't want to trivialize influencers or or creator oh. culture because I do think that this is the path to entrepreneurship in many ways now, mm -hmm. that each person who builds a brand on Instagram has the potential to be their own boss, to you know, go at it in a way that that is flexible. And so 
you got to hustle. Like you got to do those, the things that your audience wants, you have to create and keep doing. Um, the thing that I wanted to make clear with my book is it's not a level playing field. Some right. people are faking it till they make it. Some people are using Facetune to warp their their images. Some people are getting plastic surgery that helps them, uh, you know, with their audience. And and I don't mean just about you know the the model cultural culture on Instagram. There's also like meme artists who are stealing content. There mm -hmm. there are people who are are trying their best to achieve that kind of independence on Instagram, uh, and it's it's a constant content churn. Yeah. And, and that's like another drumbeat of it. And then regular people using the product uh, start to learn those strategic things. And we've all as like collectively as a society become a lot more strategic about our online presence and personal brand. 10 years ago, if you asked somebody in high school, what their online brand was <laughs> like, they were like, are you kidding me? Like, I don't have a business. Well, um, I have students who, who were like drama majors and they said that it's required. Like being a yeah, drama major yeah. requires them to have an Instagram that is designed. Right. And it's, it's so it's part of the strategy now. Um, but you can buy comments and you can buy engagements and, yeah. and it's just difficult to look at Instagram because it's such a, like a, it's a, a, a non-transparent environment. Um, it's difficult to look at it and really evaluate it um, beyond what people tell us. And so the facade, like what you were saying about there is no outside of YouTube, the facade becomes the reality. Yeah. Like the the person's Instagram presence and what they present to people about how successful they are or um, you, what they're good at or how many how, what brand deals they have even. Um, there was a great story by Taylor Lorenz. Last, there are a lot of great stories by Taylor, but um, she talked about how a lot of people who are faking that they have brand deals yeah. on their Instagram in the hopes of achieving more. So I just think that it's it's um, it's a reaction to the fact that we all, as consumers of this media, can curate what we want our media diet to be. That it's not MTV deciding what is cool or what is valuable. That you know, I can sit in the same room as somebody else and we can spend the night hanging out and being on our phones, but we could have a completely different experience, a completely different community and, and set of things that we think is important. Yeah. Behind this, behind, as I was reading it, I kept thinking about like how the book Baudrillard's like Simulacrum Simulacrum is like updated to this because in that text, it opens with the idea that at a certain point, you, you build a, a simulation to kind of like plan against the enemy. It's from a Borges poem. And as you do that, you live so long in the plan that you become part of the plan. And then you forget that you were even planning something. You just Oh my God, <laughs> that's crazy. And I so have to read that. <laughs> it, it's, that's the, it influenced the matrix because it was like, it's the desert of the real. And that's a great phrase that we still use to this day, which is that the real is inside this place that is designed but you've accepted it as authentic and real at this point. So really it is real. And that's why I, I am never one it's to money. put down. It's, it's yes. status. It's all yep. these things. I'm never um, one I to put down with a, at all. I talked with a teenager uh, in LA who said that because she has a big following on Instagram, she can get into some of the hotter clubs and parties, even though she's underage. And the reason she has her super high following on Instagram I mean, she was into it in high school a bit, but now that she's moved to LA, she was at one 
party where Kylie Jenner also was. And then she ended up like appearing with Logan Paul at Coachella. And those two things are what got her this like status in society and like the ability to cut through the usual gatekeepers and like that kind of thing happens all the time now. Just like the power of association, the random thing. This happened to me at as I was reporting the book, I don't include this story in the book because um, I just, I guess I got cut out, but I went to Brazil and I went with a busload of Brazilian influencers to Lollapalooza. And we, uh, we just, you know, they all got their hair and makeup done. We were uh, in the bus. They were teaching me about uh, what Instagram culture is like in Brazil, which by the way is much more insane than in the U S it's, it's people opposed to their stories like 80 times a day. Um, I get there and it's, it's all like, they're posing with each other. They're posing with me. They're, um, they're doing this one brand event and all of their, all of the fans are like pressed up against the glass, like trying to get a look at what it's like. And then they get bus back. They don't go to any of the music shows. Um, but (laughs) the reason I mention it is, um, I, one of, one of them told their followers to comment on, on one of my photos and I got like 6,000 comments on that photo or maybe less, but it was, it felt, it was like a constant stream, but it's just like, I didn't do anything. It was somebody said comments on her photo. So, so I think that um, there's a lot of fakery, uh, but it's also, it can be translated into actual power. Right. I completely agree. I, 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 as much as I, I definitely, I would, I could talk to you for literal hours on this, this topic. I, I actually want to like, switch a little bit to your method. Like I want to know, since you brought up your reporting, like, how did you do this? Like this, this book <laughs> is incredible and it has such an extent from tech industry to culture itself. How did you cover all of this? Like, how was that? How did you do it? I just talked to a lot of people, but I mean, <laughs> that's not a great answer. So, so basically what I tried to do um, is I tried to think about the story in four separate lanes. Um, and I, I asked my boss at Bloomberg, Brad Stone, who's written uh, the Everything Store about Amazon, and he wrote the Upstarts about Uber and Airbnb. And I was like, "How do I know when I have enough to write a book? Like, I've never done this before. So, so when can I stop gathering things um, and and know that it'll be enough?" And he said that I should have 100 things that nobody else knows. Wow. And then then that would probably be an interesting worthwhile book. And so I, as a reporter, tried to gather my hundred things. So every day I reached out to five people on average and I tried to interview one person on average. Um, sometimes it was like more than that in a day, but on a- I was still doing my day job. So right. um, and then as I built the anecdotes, I started to categorize them as anecdotes about the founders, about competition, about culture, and about, um, I think there was one other, like internal at Facebook or something, like the internal tension. And so I color coded my note cards and like that's kind of how I thought about it. And I actually didn't know what I would find that like I, I went into the book thinking maybe this is about the future of Facebook or maybe this is about like, maybe it's a success story. Maybe it's, I I had no idea what I would find, but as I started to talk to, um, to Instagram, what in telling the culture story, I particularly wanted to focus on that intersection of Instagram's internal business decisions and human behavior, 
So I wanted to talk to people who had either directly worked with Instagram or um, become famous as a result of Instagram promoting them on the ad Instagram account or um, knew an employee or was brought in as a team to be interviewed uh, by them about what Snapchat was doing. Like I tried to talk to people who, I tried to talk to people broadly, but then I realized that the way to tell the story would be through that intersection um, while simultaneously explaining the different motivations for how Instagram built its product versus Facebook and how that led to the founder's ultimate departure. Yeah, the story unfolds. I, I like your introduction too, that explains, you know, the way that the, the way that you were able to make sure that this happened was by allowing trust and allowing to, to speak many times off the record. So you turn it into a novel-esque type of story. So yeah. it does unfold in a way that's a story. And it leads up to, in my one of my favorite chapters of the whole thing is this chapter called Cannibalization. And it at that point, when it gets there, you really feel the internal tension of what Instagram is as a platform, what Facebook is, and knowing that they're the same, how did you, how were you able to, I know you can't give too much of those secrets away, but how, how was it like to be like on the ground and actually see these types of things unfolding in front of you? The craziest thing is when I got the book deal, I started talking to a bunch of, of employees and former employees because I was negotiating with Facebook about whether I could get access to the company, but in the meantime, I was building out my reporting and I was learning from this, these sort of confidential sources that there was mounting tension between wow. Instagram and Facebook. And I was like, oh my gosh, what if this changes the trajectory of the book? Like what if the founders leave while I'm still reporting this out? How does that change the story? Like I, I was thinking like a few steps down the road and then a couple months into this process, they quit their jobs. And I worry that the the access that Facebook has promised is going to go away, the access the founders would, has promised would go away. But everyone wanted to pretend like everything was fine. So oh. they kept the access. <laughs> oh, man. So, so it's kind of a, a crazy timing situation. But I, I think in order to get under the the uh, or behind the curtain of tech companies, it's really a, a triangulation game because people pretty much don't tell you things unless they think you already know them. Right. And so a lot of just meeting with people again and again and like saying, hey, I heard this from this person. Is that how you felt? And they say, oh, actually, no, it's more like this. And building the pieces together over time, um, it was a journey for me. I didn't know what I would find. Yeah, it's such a big expanse of text. And, and, what, and working for Bloomberg, they, they're aware of the influence that Bloomberg has as well. Just like any of the tech mags would too, is like they they're aware that they can only tell you so much because your your outlet could affect stocks, you know. So it's like they, yeah. it is a matter of like how much you can say. So I'm sure it was a lot of control and a lot of like digging in order to peel those layers apart that actually gives it. And that's well, I, think, I think it's a I think as a reporter you tend to ask the question of like what's happening next, what scoop can I break, you know how do, how can I get ahead of the story. And when working in a book, the question is more like, why did this happen the way it did? Like, who was who was the person driving it? Who was the person opposed? How did those things get negotiated? Um, you know, why didn't it happen this, this other way? Who who wins? Who loses? So, like, all of those things um, are a lot easier to talk about after people have kind of processed them. Sure. And for many, in many cases, was actually very emotional for 
the people talking because they'd never been asked by anybody outside of the company about what's happening. And, and a lot of times folks are just as curious about what the context was. Because a lot of times employees don't get the full context. That's right, yeah. So, well, it's by design. Tech companies are fairly insular just so people do their work and they don't really interact with other departments because it's the NDAs are like across across the board, you know? So it really is supposed to be that establishment. But I, I actually do want to ask you a question about something that's insular. And it's not a question that will ask you to like reveal secrets, but there's a part in the book where there's kind of a method of understanding of how the inst at Instagram account operated and how that decision was made in participation or with the tension of Facebook, knowing that they were two separate entities. Like how much autonomy did Systrom have and the people who work at, at Instagram have when they made large overarching decisions as far as like how they did platform evolution? Like was that, the story tells it as like, it was pretty much two entities that lived in one, like, but yeah, in the beginning. Like, how did it feel? Well, so Instagram had to try to convince Facebook that this was a good idea but Facebook really was just like, it's not going to work. Um, <laughs> and, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Instagram thought that uh, you should have relationships with your most important users, that you should um, understand how they're using the product and bring them in. And, and like Facebook thought, like if you're going to build a product or if you're going to take an initiative, you better do something that's affecting the most people possible. So mm -hmm. they have a billion users at that time. Like, why not do something that affects 100 million of them or, or more? Um, if you're Instagram and you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Ariana Grande, like, why are you doing that? You should be focused on building products that affect everyone. Um, it turns out that the people with a really big following on Instagram actually had a good sense of the problems that were about to come up. Things oh, like bullying, cool. things like, uh, you know, mental health issues that their users were having, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, their fans were having um, issues with monetization. All these things um, were Facebook and Instagram had different philosophies on that, but Instagram was able to understand uh, some product issues and problems before they came to a head by talking to people who had a ton of followers. But see, I think that, and I'm not, a, I'm not in Silicon Valley, but I think the personal approach is the more valuable approach because it results in people, Instagram's model is that they do something and people, I don't want to use the word mimic, but they absorb that style. You no, know? So, no, it's true that they do. I mean, I, I think that that they they understood their power in terms of what they featured so much that they would make decisions on what they would not feature. So like they didn't want to feature sexy yoga ladies on yeah. that Instagram account because they didn't want people to feel bad about their bodies. They, even though that was really popular on Instagram, they didn't want to feature people standing on the edges of cliffs with a beautiful mm -hmm. sunset behind them because even though that was popular on Instagram, that could be dangerous and lead to people falling off of cliffs and dying. So there are all sorts of things that they took into consideration when thinking about what to promote from what their users were doing. It wasn't just about what was popular, but what would train people how to use Instagram well. Um, and one example of that is like in the beginning of the Explore page, when it was all human curated, now it's all algorithmic. I'm sure if you go there, you'll see that it's like completely personalized. But when yeah. it was all, all human 
created. There was a category called oddly satisfying. And the engineers thought that that was like, why would you do that? This stuff is just weird. It's like slime, people slicing soap, like <laughs> kinetic sand, like we don't get it. Um, and the Instagram community team employee says, no, actually, I think people are going to love this. And it ended up being one of the most popular channels. But they had they had people in all different countries. They had them talking to users, creating spreadsheets. Um, the same person who had that instance with the engineers also was the one who would like run the weekly fluff, which is a feature on the most popular or the most interesting pets they would find. And he really appreciated pets that looked really goofy or uh, disturbed or had like health issues, but they were, they were recovering the rescue dogs and cats with their tongues sticking out and things like that. And um, so even though he was like creating a spreadsheet of, of, all different kinds of animals, he tended to promote his favorite sometimes. And and I talked to the owner of one of those dogs, which is at Tuna Melts My Heart, which now has, I think, 2 million followers. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> and it all started with this one employee at Instagram putting Tuna on his spreadsheet and then deciding to feature him one day. And the the owner ended up having to quit her job just to just to manage her dog's new career. It was crazy. That is crazy. That's, I actually want to talk about that, the algorithm a bit, because you, you bring up something that I would love to explore a little bit, which is the concept behind the machine thinking that is so well-trained that it doesn't just curate the feed that makes, that allows you to see the type of feed of what people want to look at, but you know, not just the explore page, but just the feed itself, the non-synchronous uh, um, non-synchronous feed encourages user uh, interaction. So it's brilliant because it's not just a device that's for entertainment, but actually a device for participation. But I think that's so subtle. I don't think that people understand that. And I think that- Oh, I didn't know so it amazing. until I until I was reporting and figure, figured out that that was the thing. So when Instagram introduced an algorithm for the first time in 2016, people were really upset because um, brands had gotten really good at posting at the right time of day, uh, the right kind of, they were posting daily, whereas the bar was really raising for regular users and regular users didn't feel like their content was Instagrammable enough. Like they weren't doing fantastic, amazing photographable things every day. And the brand accounts and the people who were professional Instagram users were. And so Instagram needed to fix that or else they would lose the masses. And so when they introduced their algorithm in 2016, they decided to train the algorithm to promote the kind of posts that make you want to post. That's incredible. <laughs> so that's how it works. And, yeah. and it, based on what you're seeing in your Instagram feed, it's, those are the things, I mean, beyond your close ties, which they use a little bit of Facebook's friend network and your own activity for that, mm -hmm. they're going to show you the stuff that's going to get you to comment, to respond, to, and to post your own photos. Yeah. And that's a bit different for me than like Facebook. Facebook does not make me want to participate, but Instagram actually does. And I don't know if it's because it's lightweight or it has much more of a, a less barrier of entry, but that is a brilliant design in terms of like how we think. And that, that to me is one of those things that I think will be studied for decades afterward is how much Instagram kind of subtly changed culture by steering. It's all, the way I think of it is like the difference between a cruise ship and a small boat. 
The cruise ship needs to take a long turn. It takes a while, but a small boat is very maneuverable. But when that boat turns, it changes directions. And that's such a big process that we don't see because it's kind of like watching a kid grow. You don't see it if you're with them, but when you see them differently, you see big jumps. And, and Instagram does that so well that they, as your book points out, that they were able to, while being part of Facebook, avoid the controversy that came with the 2016 election, Cambridge Analytica, and any of the fake news things that are problematic inside of Instagram, but they were able to avoid that at, for a certain extent. Did you, did you, when you were reporting this, did you feel attention from the people who worked at Instagram of a nervousness that that might affect them eventually? Or were they- Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the big tensions uh, between Instagram and Facebook, that Instagram wasn't given the resources from Facebook to be proactive about the problems that could come up on its on its app. Right. Um, I mean, if Instagram is the future, you've got a network that works completely differently than Facebook. And Facebook was saying Instagram should use the same resources, the same machine learning and image recognition, et cetera, to find things happening on Instagram. Um, but the way Facebook systems work, they really center around links, first of all, which mm -hmm. Instagram does not have hyperlinks. And they center, center around real identity, um, sharing. Instagram doesn't have sharing. And so all of those tools that Facebook has built to protect us in the 2020 election don't as apply as well to Instagram. Instagram has anonymity. It's image-based. It, people have multiple accounts. You can create an account whenever. Um, and there's no there's no hyperlinks. And so a, a lot of things are hidden in hashtag communities. And I talked to one woman who spent the last few years trying to get Instagram to do something about the fact that they have a major illegal drug sales uh, yeah, community that was on Instagram. Absolutely. Right? So like these things are happening just because we don't see it on our Instagram. There's no like virality where we would see of uh, the things that other people are looking at. But there are some really uh, sinister things. There's a lot of uh, communities on Instagram that really can't find because they don't go viral. Mm -hmm. um, you just have to know that they exist. Yeah, br bringing back up uh, Taylor Lorenz's article from a while ago, and I think it was The Atlantic, and she wrote, Hate Finds a New Home on Instagram. And m a lot of my research over the last decade has been in the uh, uh, far right extremism. And there's a lot of meme pages. And I know that the oh, meme, yeah. meme pages were like brought up. I, I also love your term for meme pages because I used it today in something I wrote, which was like shareable funny jokes. And I was like, that's great. <laughs> that's just the easiest way of describing what a meme is. Um, Screenshots so and tweets for a while. <laughs> Tumblr. Right. There's, there's these pages though that are profiting, these influencers that are profiting from very, very disturbing material on Instagram. And they stay in their private pages because it doesn't get them kicked off the platform. But that's like one of those things that like Instagram, while while it does its job, it also is a haven. And that type of haven is like also something that they've been able to slyly maneuver and not be able to be pegged for it at some point with by explaining like this is their fault. You know, so Instagram is very delicate with that. What did, were you able to talk about that with them at all? Like about what that feels like to know that they're hosting some of that content? I I think that right now, so yes, yeah, so many employees have told me they were very upset about getting uh, lacking those those individual resources from Facebook um, to go and look at this problem. I, I explain it in my book. It's kind of like like if you had an apartment complex and there you were allowed to like trap the mice 
Oh, and this is such a great analogy. Germany, yeah, the bugs that you saw um, patched the leaks, but you couldn't see, like you didn't have the ability to look for like, is there a larger structural issue? Is there like something happening in the walls that I don't know about? Like you just didn't have the money to do it or your landlord wouldn't let you because they were focused on renovating the Facebook apartment first. Yeah. That is one of the best analogies that isn't just for Instagram and tech companies, but like kind of the world right now. Like <laughs> we have the resources We're to do putting something. out fires. Yeah. Putting out tiny micro problems and there's massive issues that we can't actually structurally access. And I think that's something that Instagram, I think that's the tension that happens later in your book that like really gets the crux of like, what, what is next for it? Well, Facebook is all about data. Like Facebook wants to do what it can measure. And it's very mm -hmm. hard to get a you know promotion at Facebook, et cetera, like get the KPIs that your boss wants you to get if you don't get the, the metrics. And when it comes to taking down bad stuff, it's really hard to measure the absence of something. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one reason why the technology industry has been uh, less proactive about addressing its issues because it's hard to, to chart. Right. Get bonuses for. Let me ask you two more questions before I get it to the audience. If anybody has any questions too, please feel free to ask. Uh, we have a few questions lined up. Um, I want to know a bit about how, so a bit about your background and some of the research that you do other than Instagram. I want to talk about one first question is how did you get on your beat? Like what makes you interested in this specific topic? What, what, what is that up for you? So this beat, I got it, I think when this co these companies were still pretty small, like Facebook had just gone public um, and a, a colleague was leaving the team and recommended that I come on it. I had been covering East Coast technology companies and I it was like IBM, Accenture, like Akamai. And I asked if it was okay if I tried to break some news on startups. Mm -hmm. And my editors were like, sure, as long as you still, you know, do enough IBM coverage. Um, but I ended up breaking news and then they, they were like, no, 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 more of that, do more. And so <laughs> I started doing a lot of consumer tech coverage and then the tech editor told me that I should be a consumer tech reporter, um, do something that was, you know, more fast paced. And social media at the time we had covered it, like we had a different person covering Facebook versus Twitter versus LinkedIn. Like we didn't really, there was no Snapchat to coverage to speak of. Right. So it was really um, kind of new. And I was the young person. Yeah, you're, you're obviously you've done a great job of like making connections in the field. I want to talk real quick about the article you recently wrote about Snapchat and Evan Spiegel and the decision they made to, I don't want to, it's not deplatforming, but unpromoting <laughs> Donald Trump when, when Twitter yeah. and Facebook decided, very specifically decided that they were quote neutral, which resulted in uh, ex-employees being like, there is no neutral in tech companies, you know? So I want to hear a little bit about your coverage of uh, Evan Spiegel's uh, Snapchat and what happened there. I mean, you're right that there is no neutral in tech companies that the, the, the bias is towards engagement. It's not a political bias. Uh, it's right. a bias mm -hmm. towards what gets retweeted, what gets shared. Um, and that kind of content tends to be a content that sparks emotion, whether that's fear or anger or happiness or optimism. Uh, you saw that, that article recently about 
President Biden's uh, aspirations. I talked with his campaign about this. He wants to get go after like the optimistic suburban moms on Facebook. Um, in contrast to the Trump, like you know, rally the rally the anger strategy. But mm-hmm. Snapchat was just like, no, we are not about that. Like we, instead of going into this this detailed policy debate every time something happens that we don't like, um, like every time something hap- something from Trump uh, gets has gotten you know, either labeled or or highlighted or uh, addressed in some way over the last week, Twitter's had to say, well, this violates this policy mm-hmm. and like this problem. Um, Snapchat was just like, we don't want to promote content that might have racist, violent consequences. Right. So we're just not going to put any of Trump's stuff on Discover, which is crazy because I actually just wrote a big story about how Snapchat is going to be essential in the 2020 election for the youth vote. Oh, no kidding. Yes, that Snapchat, because college campuses are closed uh, or maybe virtual um, because people aren't going to the DMV, like in in California, the DMV is still closed to get their licenses and registering to vote. Snapchat has been registering a ton of 18 year olds. When you turn 18 on your uh, profile, it has a register to vote link for the entire week. That's and, brilliant. <laughs> and they've really leaned into it. Mm-hmm. And they have their their very popular Good Luck America show, Peter Hamby show. And Trump was doing extremely well on Snapchat. He was posting frequently and his posts would often get on the Discover page. And the thing that the Trump campaign told me they love about that Discover page is it's it takes you beyond your followers. Yeah. It's it shows you to like a broad general audience. Yeah. And and that's hard to get on on any other platform. And so taking Trump off the Discover page definitely is something the campaign is not happy with. Yeah, I'm sure they're not because it's a very heavy digital campaign. And like I like a statistic that you had in there. Um, this leads me to my last question. That was like there was I think it was like five point nine million dollars or something like that was spent. Yeah. On things, and it was like Hillary's was sixty thousand or something, and it was like a. Oh, it's wild. not money. That's the number of. Oh, the number of posts, of right? Ads. Yeah. Versions of ads on Facebook. Versions of ads, yeah. Well, because Trump's team in the twenty sixteen election basically was like, "We don't know how to do this. Help us do this, Facebook." And yeah. and Facebook offered help to his campaign and the Clinton campaign, yep. and Trump's campaign took the help, and so Facebook employees were directly advising the Trump campaign on what kinds of ads do well. And it turns out that that the kind of ads that do well are ones that have a call for action. Because again, you can measure that. Do Mm -hmm. people click on this? Do people um, sign up for this? Every Trump ad you see, you'll see like, put your name on the list, become part of this contingent or buy this hat. It always is an action because that's how you can test whether it works. And a lot of the Hillary Clinton campaign's ads were brand ads where they were trying to get you to have an affinity for Hillary Clinton. Well, that's really hard to measure and it's really hard to see. It's like a long-term thing and it's hard to see if one ad made a difference. So it's hard to make the ads better. That's incredible. Yeah, thank you. That's, it's, it was mind-blowing. So Andrew Matson asks, is anyone else writing about Snapchat in the 2020 election that we should know about? Who is on the snap beat that we should follow and we could follow aside from you? Uh, so I really like the stories, but so this hasn't really been about Snapchat. I think Politico did a story about 
I think I was the first one to write about like the election strategy, but um, Alex Heath does a lot of good reporting on Snapchat. Um, I think that there are like at the information, um, I think Politico is the one that wrote the story about the uh, Biden campaign social strategy. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but I think that that was the one where they talked about his desire to reach like optimistic suburban moms, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was just a, a fascinating counter strategy to Trump. Um, I, I just think they have to keep watching it. It's, yeah. it's uh, a platform that is now bigger among the among the U.S. population than Twitter. Yes. Yeah, I'm kind of glad that I didn't throw my uh, Snapchat spectacles out. I still have those. <laughs> I, think I don't gonna, have them, but that sounds great. I'm going to start jumping back into that platform because right now I only use Instagram and Twitter. So uh, Nikki on the Daily asks, oh, hey, Nikki, uh, a question I have from a marketing standpoint, where does Instagram success dominate with impressions and engagement, IG story or IG post? Where is the story told best? Ah, it depends what kind of story you're trying to tell. Um, people like Instagram stories because you can have a swipe up because you can't have Instagram, you can have hyperlinks on Instagram posts. So again, it's harder to, to know if the post led to people going to your site or buying your product. Um, with the swipe up, you can, you can get the data right there. Uh, the thing about Instagram posts though, is they will stand out much more for a longer period of time. In fact, a a lot of contracts with influencers now require that you leave the post up for at least a couple months uh, because when you go to that person's page, you will see, you'll see it every time as opposed to just in the 24 hour period. So feed posts are more expensive, but I think story posts are more actionable. That said, I will say that in terms of influencers who have posted about my book, some people with millions of followers who post a ton of products every day don't move as much product as people. Not that I'm trying to get them to move product, but people <laughs> like the book. Hopefully, some of them do. Um, but I see a bump when people have like a really dedicated audience that cares about their recommendation. So mm-hmm. people with millions of followers may actually not be as effective as people with a couple thousand. See that you're just bringing up old, like old stories about long tail and like virality yeah. too, which is like, it's always an, a timeless process of the web. Cindy asks, can you speak about what it means that one small group of men are responsible for the platforms that mediate our communication? It's huge. I mean, that's, we're having this discussion this week about representation, about who has a voice. I think if you look if you look over time at the people who have been featured by Instagram, I think it tends to skew US mm-hmm. and it tends to skew a white. And I, I think that they tried to address that. And we're seeing a lot of, of things happen right now, like like people lending, giving their platforms over to black creators to use them mm-hmm. for it. I saw Selena Gomez was doing that. Um, but I, I mean, they're tastemakers even if they're not directly picking the people to to feature like Instagram is, the platforms are still tastemakers. Right. Um, I will say though, that the there is a benefit to social media, which is that the truth is laid bare, right? You can mm-hmm. see it's a filtered truth. It's sometimes a warped truth. It's sometimes, it's extremely flawed, 
but nobody can deny things like police violence right. against people of, of color more than people who are white. Um, those things that like the use, the establishment used to get away with lying about now they can't as much. Right. So that's good. And then the other thing I'd say in terms of diversity, Instagram is a way to build a business without going through the regular gatekeepers. And I've talked to so many entrepreneurs on Instagram. Um, you can call them influencers, but you know everyone's an entrepreneur, small business owner, um, who haven't had to to rely on white male investors, white male agents, white male you know all of the like deciders of mm -hmm. what is valuable in our culture. Like you can just decide that you want to be a comedian. Right. And do it on Instagram and hopefully people will appreciate it. Or you can decide that you want to run a meme account or you can decide that you want to build a bakery. Um, I talked to these women in Sao Paulo, Brazil, who just built a donut business out of their apartment. And they just have it delivered via Ubers to people who order their donuts. That's amazing. So that's, you're bringing up a point that in my studies of YouTube, I've been studying YouTube since 2006. And I always said, you know, YouTube always said it was a space for like marginalized voices that you could go around the gatekeepers, you know? And in the end, YouTube just ended up accidentally perpetuating traditional media structures until the 20 teens. It, at the beginning, it was very much that. Where I think the point you just bring up is that Instagram isn't so much of a perpetuation of an old medium. It is its own new environment. And so that is something I think that is, I think is well covered in your book, but I think is also part of like the ethos of like what we actually watch them do at a certain point, which is the pro the promotion of independent entrepreneurs, which I think is really nice. Yeah. Let's have another question. We have Andrew asks, on many platforms, creators game the algorithm. Is that something that Insta creators do or do they just follow on the platform's advice for creating more attractive posts and stories? Well, actually the advice from Instagram these days is to be more vulnerable because oh. that gets better engagement. So that, that warps my brain because that means yeah. like people who are trying to be more real, are they doing it strategically? I don't know. Um, it gets complicated, you guys, but about the algorithm. So, so people will always try to game the algorithm. They will always try to do, if they know anything about it, um, they will try to do something. So like, I, I hear myths about the algorithm all the time. Some of, some of them have a little bit of truth to them, which is that like, if you come, if you want your comment to be seen, or if you want your post to be seen, like somebody needs to comment on it with at least four words, they need to comment within the first 10 minutes, like all of these Instagram pods, they're called pods, like people who, um, work together, like you could be in a travel pod or a food pod with other, people who have Instagram accounts, sometimes really tiny ones. And they say like, okay, you guys, every time somebody in this pod posts, you have to comment on it within the first 10 minutes and you can get a bot to do it for you, but that's the rule or else you get kicked out of the pod because they think <laughs> if they get enough, if they get enough comments going, then the algorithm's going to think that it's really important and they're going to show it to more people. Um, so that's, that actually is kind of how the algorithm works, but they're getting better at identifying that bot activity. Another yeah. trick that I've seen, um, and this is one I, I wrote about in the book, in comments, uh, because the algorithm no longer rewards brands as much um, unless they are 
you know, we talked about how the algorithm encourages creation of posts. Mm -hmm. So you, you may not have your posts seen as often if you're posting every day and you're a brand and people aren't engaging with it. Um, so one thing that people have done is they've commented on more famous people's posts because they notice that if you're verified, your comment will show up higher. Wow. And the whole reason that that happened is because the Kardashians complained to Instagram <laughs> that as the sisters were commenting on each other's posts. It was get, getting lost in the thousands of posts and they couldn't see it. Um, and they, they wanted to be able to interact and like create, create some sort of conversation in the Instagram comments. And so Instagram thought, okay, you know, you're right. Like we should have an algorithm to comments because sometimes there are thousands of comments. It shouldn't just be most recent first. Um, but what's, what's changed about that is now you can be totally strategic about comments. Yeah. And that was, I love that part of the book is how collaborative Instagram, the platform was with its influencers, especially the Kardashians too. And like, that was amazing part of the book about how it wasn't just the, the Jenners or Kardashians. It was like about how they talked to them. And I thought that was like really, really fascinating that there was input, like actual user input into it. I mean, it has a benefit of, of value, but it's like, that's, that was great. So one last question is, uh, what do you think's next? What do you, what do you think happens with the platform now? It's now says Instagram from Facebook. What is the next thing? What's the evolution in the 2020s? Instagram is going to become two things. First of all, they're going to become a lot more integrated with Facebook. Okay. Mark Zuckerberg thinks that after all of these years of Instagram using Facebook's resources to grow, it's time for Instagram to give back. So you're going to see a lot of prompts telling you to check out Facebook via Instagram. You're going to see a lot of, uh, I've already seen these notifications on on Facebook that say, hey, you, you follow this person on Instagram. Don't you want to follow their Facebook page? So you're going to see uh, Facebook try to take some of the uh, the goodness of Instagram and, and apply it to Facebook. Um, you're going to see a lot of the content and the shopping and all of that get ported over as well. Um, and the messaging apps are going to integrate. So Messenger, oh, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook, ultimately Facebook wants you to be able to use those to message anyone in any other platform. Um, whether this is something users want, I'm a little skeptical, but it's something that Mark Zuckerberg wants because he wants us to have a bigger network. Facebook thinks that the bigger, the better. So uh, you will definitely see uh, also Instagram having a lot more personalization, a lot more of a recommendation algorithm. And so then it transitions from being a place where they're trying to show you stuff you may not have discovered yet into a place that's showing you more of what you've already seen. You can purchase No Filter, the inside story of Instagram by Sarah Fryer at your favorite local independent bookseller today. Thank you for listening to the Digital Void podcast. For more information about Digital Void, including our upcoming salons, podcasts, and workshops, make sure to visit us at digitalvoid.media. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast provider. Make sure to leave us a five-star review. If you're posting to social media, use the hashtag DigitalVoid. We would love to hear from you. Send us an email at digivoidmedia at gmail.com to let us know about collaborations, feedback, sponsorships, or whatever else is on your mind.